0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about certainty and science. Generally, when a 21st century person thinks of science, he or she thinks of certainty, truth, or the realm of the absolute. One of the axioms of modern science that has been declared to be certain and absolute is the speed of light. And in absolute, in Einstein's theory of relativity, is the absolute prohibition of speed faster than light. Einstein predicted that time slows down and mass increases as one approaches the speed of light. and This axiom has been verified many times. Thus, as the velocity of a mass increases, the mass approaches infinity and time dilates, making it progressively more difficult to achieve light speed. I've just summarized some very important scientific arguments that have been pretty much verified. That was certainty until early this fall. Scientists at the Super Collider at CERN in Geneva, Europe's main particle physics laboratory, announced on the 23rd of September that subatomic particles called neutrinos fired from CERN outside Geneva to Gran Sasso, Italy, about 450 miles away, took less time, 60 nanoseconds, that's 60 billionths of a second, than light to get there. In other words, these scientists have discovered a particle, the neutrino, that can travel faster than light. These scientists at CERN were so astonished by their discovery that they rechecked the experiment and evaluated every possible error but could find none. Hence, they immediately requested that other labs around the world replicate this experiment. In his usual pithy manner, columnist Charles Krauthammer has observed that this means Einstein's relativity, a theory of uncommon beauty upon which all of physics has been built for 100 years, is wrong, not just inaccurate, not just flawed, but deeply, fundamentally, indescribably wrong. If true, then everything changes. We shall need a new physics, a new cosmology, new understandings of the past and future, of cause and effect. Close that quote from Charles Krauthammer. If verified and considered to be in fact true, this discovery will necessitate a complete rewriting of our understanding of the universe. We do not really understand that much about our universe. For example, Listen to what Chuck Colson writes. Only 17% of the matter of the universe can be accounted for by our understanding of this universe. We can only infer the existence of the other 83%, which in science is called dark matter, from the speed at which the galaxies rotate and the way that they cluster. Thus, a significant part of the universe is actually a mystery to us. That there is so much mystery does not negate nor diminish the value of science. It simply means that humility and caution are needed when it comes to theories about how things work and explanations about cause and effect in this world. This has been very technical, and perhaps many of you listening to my voice have not completely followed all the scientific detail. But there are certain conclusions we can reach that I believe are very helpful. It is quite likely that there was a measuring or equipment error at CERN that will explain this faster than the speed of light neutrino. But perhaps, on the other hand, there was no error. Regardless of what further investigation demonstrates, this we know. Science is not the ultimate authority for truth. Only God can claim that. In the class that I have taught for many years, I walk my students through an exercise that demonstrates that indeed all truth is God's truth. Follow carefully. Because God is the author of all that is and the infinite knower of all that is, then God is the ultimate author of all truth, because God alone possesses or knows all truth. We use the term omniscient to capture and summarize that. We also know and believe that all truth is unified in the infinite mind of God. Therefore, God is interested in humanity's pursuit of truth. And as humanity thinks correctly about God and his world, it thinks as its creator does. In effect, humanity has the inestimable privilege of thinking God's thoughts after him. Isn't that a marvelous thought? The Bible commands us in both the Old and the New Testament, in the New Testament and the words of Jesus, that we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and, and, strength, and therefore, to think, to pursue truth, to pursue truth in science, to use the scientific method, to look in a huge, enormous telescope like we see in several of the mountains of the world that enable us to see galaxies in way beyond what the human eye can ne- normally see, what we see from the Hubble telescope, what we see in these electron microscopes, and on and on and on, what we are really doing is examining, discerning, seeking to understand, and forming truth statements, propositional statements, as we study what God has made. The pursuit of truth is a holy act. And certainly whatever does come of a, as a result of studying this neutrino that CERN fired 450 miles into Italy and that apparently arrived faster than the speed of light, If all of that proves to be true, it just confirms something. Science is the pursuit of truth, but we are finite, meaning we are limited beings. But to pursue truth is a holy act, because we are thinking thoughts after the creator God himself, and that is indeed a holy act, because all truth is God's truth. This leads me secondly, in our second perspective in the program today, to think with you about the science of climate change. Now, this today is an incendiary topic. It has become so politicized that it's almost impossible to have any kind of reasonable discussion about it. But I found an article that has helped me put some of this into a proper perspective, Robert Bryce of the Manhattan Institute has written a a, a very helpful and very piercing essay entitled Five Truths About Climate Change. Because there is so much hope and so much emotional baggage surrounding this topic, it is always refreshing when you read something that is balanced and insightful. To that end, I want to use Bryce's essay as the basis for this perspective. Robert Bryce acknowledges the reality of global change in temperatures, and there is no question about that. But in doing so, he simply presents factual data and observations that place an issue like this in a helpful perspective. First of all, now listen carefully, carbon dioxide emissions have been the environmental issue of the past decade. Former Vice President Al Gore focused rather powerfully during this past decade on carbon emissions as the singular most important cause of the increase in global temperatures. Indeed, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a United Nations body, basically agreed. Worldwide, in this last decade, there was talk of a global tax or placing limits on carbon dioxide. There were promises, for example, from the world community when it gathered in Copenhagen in 2009, but there was no decisive action. There was no tax. There was no agreed upon limits on carbon dioxide emissions. So during this past decade, carbon emissions rose worldwide by 28%. Bryce observes, those increases reflect soaring demand for electricity, which is up 36%, which in turn fostered a 47% increase in coal consumption. As an aside, natural gas use increased by 29%, oil by 13%. Carbon dioxide emissions are growing because people around the world understand the essentiality of electricity to modernity. And for many countries, the cheapest way to produce electricity is by burning coal. Second, regardless of the cause of this global increase in temperatures, the world simply must produce a great deal more energy to remain productive and comfortable. And right now, the vast majority of that energy need comes from hydrocarbons. Three, the carbon dioxide issue is no longer an issue only about the United States. During this past decade, carbon dioxide emissions in the United States actually fell by 1.7 percent. And according to the International Energy Agency, the United States is now cutting carbon emissions faster than Europe, even though the European Union has instituted an elaborate carbon trading pricing scheme throughout its union. Simply put, the United States is producing vast quantities of cheap natural gas from shale, which is displacing higher carbon coal. In contrast, China's carbon emissions jumped 123% over the past decade, surpassing the United States by more than 2 billion tons per year. Africa's carbon dioxide emissions jumped 40%, Asia's 44%, and the Middle East, 57%. Thus, even if you omitted the United States from all carbon emissions usage, the use of carbon worldwide would have gone up. Number four, the world must become more efficient in its energy production, and it is. Today's best natural gas-fired turbines have thermal efficiencies of 60% compared with the original turbines of Thomas Edison in the early 20th century, which converted less than 3% of heat energy from burning coal into electricity. Bryce argues that nearly all of the things we use on a daily basis, light bulbs, computers, automobiles, are vastly more efficient than they were just a few years ago. We are becoming more efficient in energy production, and it is reducing the carbon footprint, especially in America. But this leads to a fifth and final proposition, which is very important and actually quite imperative for us to remember. If we accept the proposition that carbon emissions are bad, it is not really clear exactly what we should do about this. For example, Tom Wigley of the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, recently published a report that determined switching from coal to natural gas really does not benefit the global climate. Wigley discovered that particulates put into the atmosphere by coal-fired power plants, although detrimental to the environment, cools the planet by blocking incoming sunlight. Thus, using energy sources that emit no particulates, like nuclear or natural gas, will not make a major difference, in averting near-term changes in climate caused by the carbon dioxide emissions. It also follows that widespread use of renewable energy, things like wind or solar energy, will not make a difference either. The bottom line of much of this discussion is that those who are so critical of carbon emissions really have no credible alternatives to replace the hydrocarbons that now provide 87% of the world's energy. Dear people, that's the bottom line. No matter what we think about carbon emissions, no matter what we think about the nature of carbon dioxide and its relationship as it released into the atmosphere of global change, increase in temperatures, the bottom line fact is that 87% of the world's energy comes from hydrocarbons. And that is not going to change quickly. Wind energy is not going to solve that. Solar energy is not going to solve that. So perhaps we should be focusing on greater and greater efficiencies as we look at alternative sources, because for the third time, 87% of the world's energy is generated by the burning of hydrocarbons in some form. Every now and then, we must step back and ascertain what the truth is about climate change and carbon emissions. Robert Bryce of the Manhattan Institute has helped us do that. Our world is dependent on hydrocarbons for its energy sources. There is nothing currently on the horizon that will alter that simple fact. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about reflections on the Occupy Wall Street movement. One of the more perplexing aspects of our culture right now is the Occupy Wall Street movement. Questions about this movement abound, most important of which are, what exactly does this movement want? What are the action points that they are demanding? Are they advocating a collectivist agenda where the state forcibly redistributes wealth Are they demanding that the state employ people who cannot find work? Are they demanding that the state punish all bankers and all real estate brokers? Is there an agenda? Whatever their exact demands, this group of demonstrators in New York City and Wall Street and in other major cities around the world loathe what they call the undeserving rich. They disparage the Wall Street types as overpaid and undeserving. Bankers are also a likely target, for they are the ones, they often say, who got us into this mess. So it seems that the growing economic inequality in the United States and worldwide is at the bottom of their concern and their rage. Economic inequality has, in effect, become the new political fault line In the United States. Some are calling this class warfare, pitting the rich against the poor. Is that what this Occupy Wall Street movement is all about? How should we think about this phenomenon? I do not believe it's easy to answer that question, but I found some helpful comments and perspectives, and I want to share those. The economist Robert Samuelson has written a helpful essay about economic inequality in the United States and, indeed, in many other nations. Three generalizations kind of frame, and should, I think, frame our thinking about this. Let me share those. First of all, from 1945 to the late 1970s, the richest 10% of Americans Accounted for about thirty-three to thirty-five percent of the total income, and this included capital gains, which mainly came from the stock market. By two thousand and seven, their share was fifty percent. Most of that gain went to the richest one percent, whose share rose from about ten in nineteen eighty to twenty-four percent in two thousand and seven. Number two, such disparity, and there's no question there is a disparity there, is really a global phenomenon. In a 2008 study, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development found that inequality had increased for 17 out of 22 countries over the two decades. Sweden and Denmark, the richest 10% have incomes about five times greater than those of the poorest 10%. In the United States, that ratio is 14 to 1. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development average is 9 to 1. In Mexico, it's 27 to 1. So it isn't only in the United States that you see this significant disparity of wealth between the very rich and the very poor. But number three, the rich do not escape taxation. In 2007, and this is a very important statistic, In 2007, the richest 10% in the United States paid 55% of all federal taxes. Now, I want to repeat that. In in 2007, the richest 10% paid 55% of all federal taxes. Because the reality is right now in the United States, about 50% of our citizenry, who should pay taxes, pay no taxes at all. So we are seeing, despite all that the Wall Street occupiers are saying, and despite the disparity of wealth, when it comes to taxes, 10% of the population in the United States is paying 50%, 55% actually, of all federal taxes. And the richest 1% pay the lion's share of that. 28% of all federal taxes. The average tax rate for the top 1% in America is almost 30%. An important that's also a fact, an important fact is that the richest 3% account for 36% of all charitable contributions in the United States. That's an important statistic as well to bring balance to this. 3% of the richest people in the United States give 36 percent of all charitable donations in our nation. Those things bring balance. Those factual statements bring balance and perspective to the cries of those young people in the Wall Street Occupy movement. I'm not saying they don't have issues. There is no doubt there's economic disparity. But let's remember, the richest 10 percent in the United States pay 55% of all federal taxes, and the richest 3% contribute 36% of all donations, all charitable donations in this country. Professor Samuelson's most helpful comments focus on who the rich really are in America. As he shows, they are not all pampered CEOs. They're not all investment bankers, pop stars, or athletes. Many own small and medium-sized companies. Half of the wealth of the richest 1% consists of stakes in these medium and small businesses. There's double the holdings in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds throughout the United States. In short, to simply tax these folks who are supposed to create jobs does not make sense. Are the rich to be punished for succeeding or merely asked to pay their fair share? Who is wealthy and who's just well-off? Is $250,000 a reasonable cutoff for couples, as Obama once suggested? If taxes do rise, what approach would best preserve incentives for hard work, for investment, for rich taking Are President Obama's assaults on wealthy business leaders just deserts or political cheap shots? As with most things in life, superficial generalization, which are characteristic of the current debate about the wealthy, Do not make much sense. Nor are such generalizations really that helpful in producing meaningful solutions to major issues. The new political fault line of economic inequality will be part of the major talking points for the 2012 presidential campaign. But, as Samuelson has shown, to simply advocate tax the rich as a solution to the nation's economic problems, especially the reality of economic inequality, solves nothing. Our nation's leaders must debate and must discuss an overhaul of a cumbersome and incredibly inefficient and ineffective tax code. That debate, then, would include meaningful and constructive discussions about tax rates, equity, and preserving incentives for genuine risk-taking and hard work. But what is occurring now in the Occupy Wall Street movement is neither constructive nor beneficial. It is rhetoric. And it does not advance the cause of meaningful debate on a very important issue. And in that sense, this is a very sad approach to solving a very complex but very necessary debatable issue in our nation. That is not occurring in the Occupy Wall Street movement, but we need that debate. May that be a part, a constructive part, of the 2012 presidential campaign.